place is now. And it's forever. Ghosts of my life. I don't think even Toby Esterhase's people would follow us here. The food's well below the standard they've come to expect. So, Carla's fireproof. He can't be bought and he can't be beaten. Not fireproof, because he's a fanatic. I may have behaved like a soft dolt, the very archetype of a flabby Western liberal, but I'd rather be my kind of fool than his. One day, that lack of moderation will be Carla's downfall. And we're back. Another episode of Lost Futures, a Mark Fisher podcast. And I'm Stephen Clutt and... I'm Marlo. And we're here talking about espionage. Or the TV show, movie, book, Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy. What have you got to say about this, Marlo? Yeah, so this chapter, I guess it's an article he wrote for film quarterly film quarterly in the, 2011 the film quarterly. <laughs> you want to read a periodical about film film quarterly yep <laughs> one that comes out four times a year and it's the second section of the chapter return to one the, yeah return to the 70s so and why are we talking about it as a return to the 70s because it takes place in the 70s <laughs> yes tinker taylor soldier spy was a book written by a famous spy novelist uh john le Carr, 1974 it's actually a pseudonym his real name is david john moore cornwell because he, he couldn't use his name because he was an MI6 agent and no. they, they don't allow it, so he had to write under a pseudonym. And the context to this is that he, he was unceremoniously removed from MI6 in 1964 as the result of a famous double agent within MI6. Yeah, so famously... In the 60s, I forget his name. Kim Philby. Yeah, so that guy was absolutely working for the Soviets while a high-ranking agent in MI6 and very much feeding information to the Soviets all the while uh, also giving intelligence that seemed good to the British to convince them that he was a valuable asset and he... Had good contacts. Uh, so then uh, Lacar basically decided to write a whole book about why he's been wronged by everyone. Well, he wrote a whole series of books. This is one of many smiley novels that he right. wrote. But this is his most famous because it was turned into a very famous BBC series. But uh, before we get into that, what is the story? The story is there's a mole in the British, the MI6. There's a guy working for the Russians in MI6. George Smiley was caught up as part of an operation that ended up failing because of this mole, which led to uh, Smiley's unceremonious resignation. And then later, the MI6 or a section of it gets intelligence they feel is actually good to confirm that the mole does in fact exist. So they go to George Smiley and they're like, Smiley, we need you to catch the mole, but you're going to kind of be working outside of MI6 to do so. And Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy is a nursery rhyme. And also, it's the code name for the four most likely suspects of being the mole. And the show, and I believe also the book, is very much structured around him interviewing each of these individuals one at a time, getting four different stories, also interviewing like another guy 
uh, just for fun. And, um, you know, just a lot of talking in hotel rooms. And then he gets, like, all the stories and then he figures it out. In the movie, they did less of the interviews because they were literally an hour-long episode apiece in the show. And they did less of that in the movie. And it was more just kind of moving the beats of the story along. Yeah, so to go over the beats... In the show, movie, and novel, one of the MI6 agents is sent undercover into Hungary, into Budapest, to talk to a general that supposedly has information about who the mole is. But it was a setup but by it, the mole. But it was a setup by the mole, and that guy ends up getting shot in the back. Yes, and George Smiley was sort of, his name was on some of the paperwork, and they're like, Smiley, this fuck-up's on you, you're out. Yeah, so everyone is under suspicion, and everyone is, like, the whole organization ends up taking a huge PR hit because of this, and George Smiley gets pushed out along with Control, who is the head of this organization. Which is called the circus, but also it's, you know, just MI6. MI6. That's the other thing about it is there's a lot of jargon that was yeah. kind of invented. Yeah, yeah. Uh, famously, this is where the term mole comes from to mean that. Mole, uh, scalp hunters. Okay, yeah, but no one knows what that is. Mole is the one that we... <laughs> The circus, because yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it ends up being a name for the hectic world of espionage. Right, yeah, and it's always the cutesy little names they give to their organizations. He also coined phrases like treasure or chicken feed for the right. information that's fed to the... Right, So, right. like, the mole is giving chicken feed to... You know, and they think it's treasure, and they they use this constantly throughout yeah, the book, yeah. and you know, it kind of gives a, as Fisher says, a world that's lived in. You know, it's world building kind of. So that's the story that this is all about. It was originally in '74 a novel, then it became a BBC series, then it was made a movie in 2011. Right. The BBC series also was from like. 79-ish? Yeah, 79-80. Yeah, so now uh, Mark Fisher is writing for Fame's periodical Film Quarterly about this movie that just came out. So he starts out very explicitly, I notice, hauntologically in like kind of a structural, this is how you give a hauntological critique kind of way. He says... The ghost that most insistently refuses to be exercised, this being the ghost that is haunting this film that just came out, is the 1979 BBC version, rightly remembered as one of the greatest ever British television series. And he also says the enigma of Smiley's appeal, which we'll get into, is one of the many specters that haunts the uh, movie version yeah. as well. So he's looking at this movie as being haunted specifically by, number one, the enigmatic way that Smiley is as a character in his scene, and number two, by the TV version yeah. that everyone's obviously thinking about if you're British and watching this movie. Yeah, and you mentioned this is setting up almost an explicitly Marxist... Uh, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't even say... So, I mean, I, I said dialectical, but I think also hauntology kind of suggests that as well in the in-betweenness of a ghost being here but not here, and that is what we're looking at, and that, that being that is a contradiction in many ways. Right. I mean, he kind of first addresses this very briefly with the idea that Smiley is apparently in British culture a much-beloved uh, character. All the children just want to be George Smiley when they grow up. Um, <laughs> and even uh, according to him, among the left, he's this beloved character. There's something appealing about him, despite the fact as the quote we played says, uh, he's a self-described liberal and he works for, 
you know, expressly a reactionary organization, MI6. And he also holds what many leftists would consider reactionary positions. Yeah, sure. So that's kind of the questions that Fisher opens this up with. Right out identifies he liked the pacing of the TV show better than the movie, which is, of course, partly due to the economy of time that exists in a two-hour movie versus a six-hour show. But he also identifies certain limiting factors, you know, not very interesting sets, not a lot of special effects as being uh, drivers of creative innovation with the TV show. Which reminds me of his critique of Joy Division, where he talks about how the world of squatters, or it's more post-punk in general that he talks about as the world of squatters, or it's like a... You know, it's original Star Wars versus the, like, special editions or the later Star Wars. Yeah, it hasn't been Hollywoodified. Yeah, well, I mean, there's something, you know, nice about the fact that in the 70s version they could only do special effects a certain way, and that limited how they could approach it. So, I feel like this entire essay is kind of haunted by his question what is the allure of george smiley because i don't know that he ever really answers it he gives a couple false answers or a couple um, i mean i think he well we'll 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 keep going let's uh i think this is a signal to explore what else he says in the essay exactly um so what is the allure so he he's Making some explicit comparisons between the book and film. So now he's kind of looking at the Guinness portrayal of Smiley, which... Right, that's a big thing that runs throughout this, is how does Alec Guinness play... It's the ghost that refuses to be exercised. How does Alec Guinness and his portrayal of George Smiley contrast against Gary Oldman's portrayal? Alec Guinness, obviously, is one of the... You know, greatest British actors. Yeah, he was in Star Wars. We know who Alec Guinness is. <laughs> he was in Lawrence of Arabia. He was, he was in, in Doctor Zhivago. He was oh, in. <laughs> he, <laughs> he was, was in Star Wars. Anyway. I mean, he was he was like a classically trained kind of. Right, and then he said, "That's right, my Wookiee friends," <laughs> and then we all went, "Yay!" Um... Yes, he was in Star Wars. <laughs> uh... 20 years of Shakespeare school for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing about uh, George Smiley and the way Lacar talks about it, which he mentions in here, is that Lacar found it very hard to write George Smiley as a character after the Guinness portrayal. Right, right. He, he had this very gracious comment of an author to the actor who played his main character as... Oh, yeah, he he fucking, he took the character from me. He is now Smiley. The thing I write is no longer Smiley. Yeah, so he he compares them. He talks about Elekinus's face in this, and he does have this world weariness in the performance. He's kind of pathetic at the same time as he is, like, like he lost his best friend the entire like the entire show he seems like he's lost his best friend i mean i will say like the way fisher kind of contrasted oldman's performance reading it before i watched the movie like i thought oldman was gonna like play him like fucking batman like i thought oldman was gonna just be like I am damaged, like, the whole time. I thought, you know. But, yeah, he he identifies this... I mean, lived in is sort of a word he gets to use a lot as both the set and setting of the movie, but also how the characters kind of are. But, uh... Anyway, this world weariness kind of gets us into an earlier idea of post-colonial melancholia and basically the... Role of Smiley as England. Right, as an English archetype, specifically. It's both, both kind of like, yeah, an Englishness and England itself. I mean, he calls Smiley a modern... Cold King War, Ar- uh, Cold King, War Arthur, King, King Arthur. Yes. And uh, done in the style of T.S. Eliot's Proofrock, which... If you're not what's from, Proofrock? Well... 
it's is that an album T.S. Eliot wrote? <laughs> no, T.S. Eliot uh, wrote a famous poem called The Love Song of J. Alfred Proofrock. And it's famous because of, well, it's probably one of the best known Eliot poems other than The Wasteland. But it's. it's oh, I know that one. It's also referenced in a Grateful Dead song. Mm-hmm. Shall we go then, you and I? is the opening line where it's basically an incel kind of having anxiety about talking to a woman. And he writes this poem where he's like fantasizing about all the things that could go wrong on his first date with a woman that's Mm -hmm. preventing him talking to a woman. You know, it's the model archetype of an impotent man in the, in the like 1920s or 19 teens. Did well, T.S. Eliot turn fascist? It's... No, he fought with he fought with his friend uh, uh, okay. about that. But it, it, it's he's always been kind of like a conservative poet. Yeah, but he like fought with what's with what's his name Pound. Uh, Pound yeah. yeah, they were friends, and they kind he kind of defended everyone. Defended Pound when he got caught in Italy. But yeah, I mean. T.S. Eliot, kind of conservative, like high modernist. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Prufrock is his like, you know, I won't talk to a woman because she'll notice my bald patch. I don't want to talk to this woman because I might stain my pants with, you know, a peach by eating a peach. Uh, He he does a bunch of other things where it's like... 1910 house issues. Yeah, uh, Shall I Measure Out My Life in Coffee Spoons is one of the more famous, you know, existential man of the early 20th century kind of things. Mm. So yeah, anyway, Smiley's like that because his wife is cheating on him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We haven't mentioned that yet. This is a thing that like comes up. A lot in the book and uh, TV show, slightly less. And I will say of all the specific criticisms Fisher levies, this is one that he's 100% correct on. Dumber in the movie. Yeah. And it's like a very British high society fucking type of cuckoldry where it's just like, it's a thing just everyone makes fun of him about. (laughs) all the time like they they can't stop mentioning and like also that but they make fun of him in like an agreed upon polite way and he can only sort of brush it off and respond in a polite way but in the um book and tv show uh you get the impression it doesn't clearly bother him And as Fisher will go on to posit, there's perhaps even a Freudian psychosexual like interpretation of this all where it's actually a sort of a role play he's participating in. Um, But yeah, I mean, in the book and film, it's like one of those things where the main issue is it just loses him respect to other men. It's, It's not really a big deal that he specifically feels enough for his wife to feel betrayed by her okay so this gets into the stuff that's lost from the novel okay in the novel she is like she's related to the prime minister Uh her cousin is the prime minister who works in it so she has connections within the government and it sort of feels like it's a uh, not a marriage of convenience but like a marriage between two estranged yeah kind of I high mean, society it, well, people I mean, either way it seems like yeah the issue is not oh my god this woman i love is betraying me this view is men are making fun of me for this. and then the other thing is the persons she's cucking him. Right. There's are, many of them. Right. But they're but also they're, all in the intelligence community <laughs> and government. Well, there are points where he's like, oh, I think she's run off with an artist she met. Yeah, uh, yeah that too. But there's a lot that but are the one, weighted towards high government and intelligence but the, community. Yeah, there's one in specific... Which is Hayden, which we haven't brought up now. Yeah, he's the bad guy. He's... <laughs> He's the bad guy. Which he, one is he? He's the mole. He's well, the, is he the tinker, the tailor? He is uh, Colin Firth. Okay, but like, which one is he in the nursery? 
I think yeah. he's Taylor because okay. he's the floofy one. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, he and but yeah, Hayden is the one that is right, right. There, there is actually a subplot that's not really explored in the movie where the fact that Hayden was sleeping with his wife kind of did matter, and also. They're second cousins. Uh, yeah, well. <laughs> Again, this is like also very 20th century Cold War intelligence community. There's always like one woman who's like sleeping with multiple politicians and spies. And like she has stuff on everyone and everyone keeps trying to sleep with her to get the stuff. Right. <laughs> and it also becomes a plot point right. in the movie because the way that... Hayden finds out about the betrayal is ambiguous and it's because he's in the bed with Smiley's wife that he finds out and so it becomes this how much does he know when does he know it oh he's sleeping with my wife but he doesn't know he knows more information than he would have otherwise right right it's a fun thing that you notice almost immediately in the show that smiley just has people asking him so how's your how's Anne doing <laughs> so yeah yeah and he never get like if this took place in the american south he would have shot eight people in the first are you fucking my wife well what the fuck do you mean how is my how is Anne doing yeah like yeah no that would in certain cultures get you shot in 1970s British high society you just kind of take it and again yeah he didn't really give a shit about his wife either um so you know whatever but in the movie of course there's this fucking scene at a party where Smiley sees his wife making out with someone with Hayden yeah okay and Colin Firth is yeah and he um like he's just like holding a glass and his hand goes tense and he's like gets like a oh he grasps his chest and the fucking violins are going off and it's it is incredibly out of character like out of the entire established mythos of how that worked and Mm -hmm. the other things I'll certainly agree to well, we jumped around. The, yeah, we uh, did jump around. He kind of jumps around, too. We, if anything, stayed on a topic. Right, right here's the quote. Uh, More troublingly, to suggest that Smiley would straightforwardly feel pain when confronted with Anne's infidelities is to betray the very idea that he is masochistic. But he, he gets into this initially with sexuality and a queerness about Smiley in the TV show and the book. Right. Which doesn't come through in the movie. Right. And to be clear, he is not using queer here to mean he believes Smiley is gay coded. Which is more Hayden, the yeah, bad well, guy. I mean, Hayden is gay. <laughs> like, Hayden is fucking. Uh, well, he's the one that's fucking his wife, though. Right. He is a. Okay, he's a bisexual he's... man. He's British high society gay. Like, he's. <laughs> Yeah, Hayden is absolutely more or less stated to be bisexual. Flamboyantly polysexual. He's also depicted in the book and in the show as explicitly very communist. Like he got into reading Marx and Mm -hmm. ideologically far more explicitly saying, you know, the Western society is degenerating and... I need to be on the side of the Soviets because it was really left at this one heavily implied homosexual relationship he had with the man who got shot in Hungary. Right. Yeah. It wasn't really explained why he was doing anything. Um, yeah. So he, he is not saying that Smiley is gay coded. He's saying the whole thing is this, odd sexual play that he kind of in a almost married to the job sort of way Mm -hmm. but his real relationship is this relationship he has with mi6 and england and for queen and country james post-colonialism and all these other things that's the thing we haven't talked about yet and he identifies it as sadomasochistic sadistic in the sense that his job entails 
doing inhuman acts as a spy, masochistic in the form that his wife is cucking him and everyone makes fun of him. And also he's constantly on the outside, even when he's not on the outside, he's getting forced out of his position. He's still doing all the work, but it's never going to pay off. He's fighting for this ideal that's been dead for 30 years, at least the England that he represents and loves is already gone. And that's sort of his masochism. And I think that'll get us into the next section. We'll take a little break and we'll come back at you with our discussion of post-colonialism, the role of the spy, his meeting with Carla, all the good stuff that he does in the second half of this. in days. Did I start the landslide, George? You were always dead right, Connie. And is George now picking up the pieces? Something of the sort. Poor loves. Trained to empire. Trained to rule the waves. Englishmen could be proud then. They could, George. Oh, God. Taken away. Bye bye, world. If it's bad, George, don't come back. Promise? All right, we're back. And that was just a riveting scene from the BBC series, which he quotes pretty early on in his article. Trained to empire, trained to rule the waves, all gone, all taken away. And uh, I think for this part, since we kind of jumped around, I think we should discuss the kind of ideological things that Fisher talks about, starting with that quote, which he uses as a pretty explicit example of post-colonial melancholia. Yeah, and the interesting way this work kind of handles liberalism and ideology in the sense that there is this pervasive post-colonial melancholia as well as hauntological melancholia throughout the work of this time loss, this lost British Empire, the 1970s. He points out there's more consternation about America replacing England than the threat of the Russians. Yeah, and that's a theme throughout all of the renditions of it. Is right, the, the guy who is protecting the mole, essentially. What, what it really comes down to is you have a mole, the mole is giving what appears to be extremely valuable information to MI6, which leads the head of the operations in MI6 to not want to look into the mole. Right. Which is how the mole's able to operate and why anytime anyone looks into the mole, they get quashed, as well as also the mole himself occasionally fucks with things when he's about to get caught. But, um... That guy is very much depicted as an American file. The Percy Allaline character. So he's one of the secondary bad guys, I guess, but and he's very explicitly depicted as an American file. Right, and he is in competition with Control, the old leader, who represents the old guard, the kind of English reserved type who is suspicious that there is a mole to begin with. And as a result of the Hungarian botched operation, which got Jim Prudeau shot in the back, basically there was a coup. And the control was usurped by Percy Allaline. And there was a restructuring of the organization. It was no longer this kind of global, decentralized operation that spanned the globe it became centralized in london and that's one of the early things 
that was yeah, changed. Yeah, it's almost kind of depicted as this. There used to be the old mom and pop spy shop, and they used to really care about things. And this is just, um, you know, so much bureaucracy and hierarchy in our state security organization. Where, uh, yeah, I mean, specifically, it's he likes quick, easy, good intelligence that you can show to the Americans and impress the Americans. Right. Um, versus, yeah. Kind of reminds me of The Wire, uh, just like uh, good policing, community policing, a police officer who walks a beat instead of tries to juke the stats. And it's like kind of a lot of the same ideas are occurring with MI6 between these two powers. Yeah, and the, the intelligence that's given is called witchcraft. They go into it more in the book. It's like information about where the Soviets have tanks deployed where they have kind of their defensive stuff stuff that the on the face of it the british yeah it seems bad but also the soviets don't think there's going to be a land war in europe and they don't really care if the british have this intelligence right and the british think that they can leverage it with the americans as a value that can get them back in the game of real global footing in the world right because the americans also i mean i guess historical context we totally just completely outfoxed the british in the suez crisis we completely fucked them because we wanted to and the british couldn't respond to it and it was sort of this moment where it's like, oh, we actually need America's approval to continue to manage a global empire. Yeah, and to a British person or British intelligence, I can see that as like, a, you know, we don't have the sovereignty as we once did. Right. So anyway, so the, get, getting back to it. So this is all within this context of the sort of ontology, contradiction, post-colonialism of trying to exist in these two spaces at once that seems to be a pervasive theme in the essay. With Smiley, as we mentioned, there's these two pools of British high society. On the one hand, he's less of a man because he doesn't do anything about his wife sleeping around, but on the other hand, to even do anything would be a level of gauche reaction that is not acceptable for the society. Every spy, and it gets into this, kind of exists as this rogue, as this enforcer of the law from the outside of the law. And then Smiley, it's even doubly so because he's been expelled from the spy agency but brought back in to work from the outside. Yeah, he's um, a, as he mentioned, he's an interloper or a voyeur. Right, and, you know, moreover with England, there's this prestige and this power and stuff that still must exist but you know it doesn't happening at the same time through all of this yeah it seems like fisher very much focuses on that as kind of a thing that works with smiley yeah uh, in he, the he, older depictions he says it's a certain model of englishness right which fits within British identity as an appealing, I guess it, was, it would get to the allure, like the British like to see themselves or, as, I mean, as... Even the fact that this character like tortures and interrogates people, I mean, kind of off camera, he doesn't really do that much shit like that. But um, he, he could do all that, but yeah, his wife is embarrassing him. Yeah, there is this one quote from an earlier book by Lacar. what do you think spies are moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of god or karl marx they're not they're just a bunch of seedy squalid bastards like me and uh i always i always like that quote because it you know it's so foreign now this that there was this 
Cold War of like oh, I mean, ideology. I mean, it's it's foreign in that I can't imagine anybody really saying that now. I mean, the quote itself is just like, "Oh yeah, we have to get into the dirt," which is the point that's being made about the spy as the rogue here. The, he says that the spy becomes a beyond good and evil agent. Right. He can't exist in the normal world. He can't just clock out. It becomes a part of his identity even when he's not working. And you see that, especially in the novel, like, they don't go into it at all, but the Benedict Cumberbatch character, the the young guy who's following Smiley, he starts, like, the more he gets into the operation, the more he, like, distrusts his girlfriend and thinks she's a spy. Mm. And, like, you know, his whole worldview is colored by this suspicion about everybody's intentions. Well, everything exists in a fringe space in this mm-hmm. world. From England's place in the world to the institution of espionage to George Smiley himself. Anyway, within all that, uh, Smiley, being a man of England in the 70s, doesn't see a therapist. Instead, he uh, projects himself upon his arch nemesis. Arch nemesis and wife. Carla is kind of the... Even in the TV show, I feel like mostly off camera. They only show one scene with Right. The Russian's version of Smiley, Frowny. (laughs) Um, In the show, interestingly, he's played by a 1979 Patrick Stewart and does not say a single line of dialogue in the entire one scene that he's in. In the movie, they made the interesting decision that, guess what, Mark Fisher comments on to have Carla be entirely off camera and have the pivotal scene uh, that... It's important be described by Smiley to Benedict Cumberbatch. In the show, it flashes back and he's there in Delhi interrogating Patrick Stewart. But yeah, so Carla, basically the scene is Carla says literally nothing the entire time. And meanwhile, Smiley starts like trying to deduce this person's character, but ends up talking about himself. Yeah, specifically Uh, through his wife, because he starts questioning Carla, do you know where your wife is right now? You know, do you know where she is? Do you know what's happening to her? Like, that's how he's projecting himself, Mm -hmm. because he's thinking about Anne. And yeah, this gets into the, the, the question that was from the beginning about how communism is synonymous with fanaticism. Right, so this is also the other aspect of ideology that has been questioned here is the weird irony that on the one hand, this is basically a mourning over the death of meta-narratives. I mean, on the one hand, this is basically saying, man, things were better when queen and country meant something and the sun never sat on the British Empire and a guy could believe in something. On the other hand, whenever anyone in this storyline believes in something, they're a bad guy. Yeah. Uh, and because the people who believe in something are the communists and also I would say the conservatives as well. I mean, in that quote believing in like the american yeah the the communists are essentially the ones who believe in something and this is presented as a dangerous fanaticism which has this interesting ironic clash with the fact that the problem with the british people in this story is they believe in nothing and they're kind of sad about the fact that they don't have anything to believe in yeah he says it here a very english ideology which appeals to a pre or post political notion of common humanity yet ironically what smiley and carla have in common is their inhumanity their exile from any sort of normal world of human passions yeah i think that speaks to what you were just summarizing that they do share and he's kind of blind to it and i think this is something that i relate to a lot about well, also the quote 
The irony of Lacara's fiction, writes Tony Barley, is that the sound basis for commitment is always either sought or mourned for its absence, and yet when genuine commitment appears, invariably in communism, it is treated as incomprehensible. Yeah. Communism becomes fanaticism. Not a strength, but a weakness. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting, because, you know, you, qu- you question even what is this belief in humanity that they... What does smiley stand for um is this sort of open question i think he gets to it i think it's been described uh i i would say like uh zizek would call it pure ideology there's a general like uh liberal humanitarianism that is right, but is, i mean does he stand for the institutions because the institutions keep failing no he just seems uh, like to be, everything fails around Anything he structured that he could place his faith into seems to be shown to be inadequate immediately. Yeah, it, it just seems like vague truth and rationality and reason. Yeah, I um, mean, does he have faith in democracy? Like, can you watch Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy and say, oh, yeah, this shows a faith in liberal democracy? Well, it has a, def- <laughs> a faith in defeating communism. Which is yeah, not, I mean, the, not the same thing. But. Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't even seem to say what good comes of that because the thing you're defending is 1970s English government, which is terribly corrupt and inadequate. <laughs> well, and that's the sort of interesting and postmodern aspect to it, which is that the enemy is internal. The enemy is inside of the institution and that we need to root it out. Well, I mean, another area that he contrasts the movie from the series is a triumphant ending in the movie, where it was far more somber. In the show. Yeah, in the show. And even in the end of the Smiley's People, the follow-up to it, he talks about this as well. In the next series, after Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, he gets Patrick Stewart and he gets Carla to come over and defect. Spoiler alert, he defects over. And at the end of that, he basically hates himself. Miley is like full of self-loathing because he, in his eyes, defeated Carla with the same type of underhanded tricks or even one would call fanaticism to try to coerce him into coming over and for that he has this deep self-loathing like who really won here like we tricked this guy to get to, to disavow everything he believed in now I hate myself for it yeah and so there is this question of like like what would he disavow yeah no what what would he disavow he's not doing it for his family like i guess in the most vague and abstract sense country sure i guess he doesn't particularly like anyone (laughs) (laughs) he he works with at all um they don't like him um this essay ends on a couple interesting points Mostly in distinguishing between how the new Hollywooded version kind of feels like a simulation, a world that was not lived in. Everybody's too attractive. Yeah, that is one thing about the show. Everyone is ugly as shit. <laughs> Everyone in the 1979 BBC miniseries is just the ugliest fucking person you've ever seen. He mentions here, it seems like too often the actors seem like 21st century moistured metrosexuals in 1970s Again, drag. Again, that's just how Tom Hardy dresses normally. Well, yeah, Tom Hardy and Benedict Cumberbatch both have these absurd blonde ginger wigs on. Oh, well, I think... Or dye jobs that yeah, like yeah I feel like I feel like Cumberbatch bleached his hair I don't know I <laughs> uh, could be wrong but it, it sticks out because it's so fake because you know what Benedict Cumberbatch looks like and he doesn't have blonde hair yeah uh, so he goes through this and how that adds a layer of I guess inauthenticity along with the yeah, accents yeah it doesn't have a certain seventies grit and grime yeah um, the accents are all off. And it seems to be similar to House of Cards. It seems to well, be the BBC House, the of, BBC Cards. House of Cards. But I would say that 
that is then extended into the 2010s American, probably. Yeah, I mean, I suppose. It's marketed towards a youthful American consumerist. And he points out the irony that in the book... I mean, it is like a slow burn two-hour-long spy movie that's fairly dialogue-heavy and very little action. Like, it is, at the end of the day, fine. <laughs> I mean, before I watched the movie, I kind of just in my mind combined it with a movie from 2014 called Kingsman, uh, which was like an over-the-top romp of a film. You know, yeah, it isn't structured as we're going to sit in a hotel room and go through this hour-long flashback six times until the series is over, but... Yeah, rushes things, and yeah, I don't know. That is one thing. It does seem to just go plot point, plot point, plot yeah, point, Yeah, it's telling a point. story in two hours. Yeah, no, it, it is, and you can't maintain the structure from the novel and TV series from that, and that's lost. Yeah, and okay, the 70s depiction, I see what he's saying. It's a very 2010s way of depicting the 70s. Yeah, it is. And, yeah, if you see the movie, I, don't, I can't, like, even name specifics, but if you watch the movie, that's what it looks like. Yeah, he does, you know, he talks about the, the mints, the household clean, the kind of branded yeah, goods yeah, that yeah. are associated yeah. with the 70s. The skin, the hair are too good, which yeah, I thought again, was funny. not everyone's fuck ugly <laughs> uh, in this movie. And therefore, you know it couldn't really be England in the 1970s. He says that here there's too much conspicuous effort going into this 1970s simulation. I hear that. I think that is something that is part of the Hollywood sets that he's talking about. Like, under neoliberalism, there is this... Yeah, they also occasionally move the camera around. <laughs> Yeah, there's certain things that they have more creative liberty with displaying, which is one of the reasons I was disappointed there was no Carla scene. Because yeah, they could well, have was, done that. And I mean, you know, we can like say, I mean, that was one of the most notable creative choices that anyone made in the movie because it's a pivotal scene in the show and book and you know it has to be there and they described it off camera. And yeah, no, and I mean, yeah, Fisher gets into it because they also basically, they like never showed his wife's face in the movie. No, they show her from the back. Yeah, they show her only from, from the, the side. back. So it's like, yeah, the two externalities of Smiley are basically completely removed from the film. Right, and the other big removal, almost entirely removed from the film, is communism. Communism plays a huge part in the show, in the book, and it is, as you said, I think, it's only mentioned like once or twice. Yeah. And it's, as Mark Fisher says, uh, like an exotic timepiece, like a time period Right, it's um, like the setting. Ajax household cleaner and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. But also, like, Hayden, you know, the Colin Firth character is explicitly, I mentioned it before, very much invested in the communist project. And right. he, he mentions that multiple times. Yeah, that's completely absolutely. In, in the, the show, yeah. In the show, he's like a dyed-in-the-wool, red marks. And they mention that the communist Carla explicitly targets aristocratic, like upper-crust people who are dissolute, who have bad relationships with their class status. Mm -hmm. And so they targeted these upper-class people who like they didn't go for the alienated by the death of meta narratives and the loss of all meaning yeah they the didn't West. go for they didn't go for working class people they, right, went, for they the, went for upper class people and were like hey you know how you can't believe in anything anymore we believe in things well i think that's a ref was the case with kim philby so it's exactly like it, it that's supposed to be a mirror but you would never know that about the 
right, character right, in the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in, in specific, like when he's in the, the final scenes, when he's incarcerated and he's talking and giving his motivations for why he did what he did to Smiley, a big part of it was this speech about how he believed in communism and that communism was the future and that he started buying into this when he was in boarding school or Oxford or whatever, and he was approached and he read the literature and he had all these opinions about the West that was made very explicit. And in here, it's just like, you know, I joined the KGB, there's like no good side, so I'm going to be on the side that wins, basically. Right. And so I see that as similar to having no car alone. Right, which is also like kind of a bullshit and tenuous thing to say about the 1970s KGB. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, oh man, yeah, those Ruskies were really, had us on our heels in the 70s. Philby was in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it, it's written. I guess, I mean, someone killed Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so it ends here. Uh, isn't Smiley's allure tied up with the possibilities of character itself? In the 1970s, Smiley showed up all the inadequacies, squalid compromises, and subterranean brutalities of social democracy. Then, Smiley's doubts and his failings prompted us to imagine a better world, even as we struggled to resist Smiley's blankly and perversely comforting avant now. Now, when the better world seems, if anything, further away, it takes all our effort to resist the lure of nostalgia for the social democratic world of which Smiley was both conscience and the dirty secret. And that ends the episode. Thank you for listening. Please uh, check out our Patreon. We are Lost Future, Mark Fisher Podcast. Do you know where your wife is? I mean, at this moment. You have to think about her. She'll have to make a new life. you have a friend, one really good friend who could look after her. Perhaps we could get in touch with her secretly. If you stay with us, we might be able to arrange something. An exchange for someone your people won't return. But if you go back, It can do her nothing but harm. She'll be cold-shouldered, suspected. The best she can hope for is to be allowed to see you before you're shot. Another meaningless firing squad.